Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name is Nick, and we are continuing in our Guarded Work series. Usually we preach out of a book in the Bible, but during summer what we've done is we've taken the whole idea of God at work. Where is God in my work, and what work is God doing? And so one of the key things that we've been talking about over these last weeks is that we have different vocations, and even potentially within those vocations, we have multiple ones. Maybe some of you have two to three jobs, yet we are called to one thing. Our primary calling is to be with Him. And it's out of that intimate fellowship where we are in fellowship with Jesus, where there's a sense in which we should desire to partner with Jesus in the only thing that he is building on this earth. And the only thing that Jesus is building on this earth is he's building the church as he's reconciling all things to himself. Last week, Sean mentioned the fact that as children of God, we have a very unique and in some ways... um, exclusive call, and that is as children, sons and daughters of the living God, we are called to build his kingdom. Now, this is exclusive in the sense that it's not that no one other than us is allowed to participate in this, but what God is saying is that as you become a son and daughter of the living God, and that invitation is open to all, you get to participate in what is the most amazing privilege of all, which is the building of his kingdom. This doesn't mean that our jobs are unimportant. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's insignificant what we do in our daily lives. It just means that we need to find that its proper place within the building of his kingdom. The reason is that we are all builders of something. Uh, we are building a brand. I took my wife for her birthday to a, uh, a woodworking class. And what I didn't realize is that this woman at the woodworking class is kind of building her brand on Instagram, and she does all these crazy videos in order to kind of build her brand and to get herself out there. We're building brands, we're building a business, we're building a family, we're building either our own kingdom or we're building his kingdom. Make no mistake, we are building something. And as we build an eternal kingdom for the common good of all people, It is our words and our works that make the reality of the kingdom of God visible to those around us. Now, Peter is writing a letter to a Gentile church, and many of us will know that in the the first century, there was a division between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews felt like we are We are a a clear nation, we understand who we are, and yet with the Gentiles, there wasn't this sense because, you know, there were were Greeks, there were Syrophoenicians, there were different peoples. It it was kind of like you were Jewish or you were non-Jewish. But Peter is writing to this church, and he says to them, but you were not like that. He's talking about the Gentiles. For you are a chosen people. Now that you've come into God's kingdom, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity, and remember he's talking to Gentile believers as a people, now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners 
And you can also say sojourners there, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. And even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior or your deeds and actions, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And we know that building God's kingdom is more than just building the local church, but you cannot effectively build the kingdom of God unless you are committed to and participating in the only thing that he is building on earth, which is his body. Eugene Peterson has this quote. He says, so why church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Now, remember, we've said this before. We are establishing colonies of heaven so that as people look into the way in which we engage, both as a gathered group of believers, but also the way in which we engage with the world, they understand how heaven works. We are an appointed gathering of named people in a particular place who practice a life and resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. That's partly why we do our welcoming in. Uh, we aren't some unnamed mob. We are known to each other in a specific place as a colony of heaven in a country of death. Church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. In other words, what he's saying is us as a group of people, simply as we gather together as the church, are providing a place where the physical presence of Jesus dwells. Sean said in the pre-gathering prayer, that there is this mystery that as we gather as the body of Christ, that Jesus is present right now in this gathering as we gather together. And that is something that's difficult for our minds to grasp, but it's something that is specifically unique to us as the church of the living God. What is church? It's not this gathering. It's certainly not this amazing facility. Church is us. And we say at the end of the gathering, go out and be the church. Why? Because it is through us that people get to tangibly experience the kingdom of God. And I want to thank you because gathered here is not a group of sermon ta uh, tasters. We taste that sermon. That sermon wasn't as good as the other sermon. We aren't here to sip worship expressions or audit community to see if it suits my needs. We are not consumers of spiritual products, but we are an engaged, sacrificial, kingdom-building family. We are a place where Jesus is glorified, where he is worshipped, where he is obeyed and loved, and where people can be set free from sin, where they can be healed, given purpose and meaning in the context of a covenant community. What we are doing, not just by gathering, but as we scatter into our worlds on Monday, is actively, uh, we are actively opposing the cultural siren song of safety, security, comfort, and convenience. There is this consistent song that is being sung by our culture, safety, security, comfort, and convenience. And what we are called to do as we gather and scatter is the building of his kingdom, which is completely opposed to those four values. So this morning, we're going to look at a builder, and we're going to look at a man called Nehemiah, and uh, we're going to jump way back into the Old Testament. 
And Nehemiah was a, a man that God used to build the walls of Jerusalem. And a little bit of background is the Jews have been taken into exile, and there's a king called Cyrus that is now allowing the Jewish nation to return from captivity and to return to rebuild Jerusalem. And this rebuilding happens in three waves. It happens under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Um, Sixty years later, a man called Ezra goes and establishes and rebuilds the temple. And then Nehemiah comes about 13 years after that. A story of Nehemiah is a very interesting one, and I have in my notes here, do this fast, okay? But um, so we've done literally a series on Nehemiah. So just in a very truncated way, what Nehemiah hears is that he hears of the state of Jerusalem. The next thing he does is he prays for Jerusalem. Then he asks the king if he can go and do something about Jerusalem. He then goes, he investigates, he envisions, and he builds. Now, the thing about Nehemiah is that he wasn't just rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. He was restoring and renewing the people of God. I've often thought about Nehemiah and his job how easy it is to build a wall as opposed to build a community of faith. The thing about bricks is that they don't talk back. Have any of you built a wall and you pick up a brick and the brick is like, I don't like the way you pick me up. Uh, And then you go towards the wall and it says, no, I don't want to be next to that brick. I don't like that brick. Um, And then you maybe move it around and then you say, no, no, I don't want you to chop off any edges. Um, I just want to be who I am, even though I'm part of this wall that you're building me in. Right? Bricks don't do that. People do that, right? Have you ever come back at the, at the kind of wall that you're building? You come back the next day and the brick has taken itself out of the wall? That never happens, right? But it happens every day in the context of building a community of faith. These are things that make building a people and restoring a people much more difficult than building a single wall. Now, let me give a word on walls. In our current kind of political climate, the idea of wall is is like people get triggered by that word. And And I get it. You know, walls... They speak of fear, they speak of separation and superiority, and and generally when we talk about walls, it's never a good thing, you know, oh, that person has emotional walls, or yes, uh, that community is divided by socioeconomic walls, And, and I get that, but in the Old Testament, what's important to understand is a city without a wall was at the mercy of bloodthirsty raiders. It was also a sign of judgment, of ridicule, and disgrace, a wall when, when God spoke about a wall in the context of the Old Testament was a sign of blessing, a sign of strength, and prosperity. That's why in Proverbs it says the ability to control, sorry, a man without self-control is like a city without walls. So what I'm talking about is an invitation to distinctiveness, not isolation or separation. It's important for us to understand that. I want to overdo the whole idea of walls. We're called to live a distinct life, a life of joy and purpose in such a way that makes people want to be part of the city of God. And so the question I'm hopefully going to answer this morning is how, does, how do we build the kingdom of God in and through our work? And three ways we're going to look at. One, of prayer and preparation. 
The second way that we build is by having flexible roles, but a secure identity. And the third way that we do that is with humble courage. So let's look at Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 20, and I'm reading out of the Common English Bible. In the month of Nisan, I don't know if it's Nisan the car or Nisan, in, anyway, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the king was about to be served wine. I took the wine and gave it to the king. Since I had never seemed sad in his presence, the king asked me, why do you seem sad? Since you aren't sick, you must have a broken heart. I was very afraid and replied, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't I seem sad when the city, the place of my family's graves, is in ruins and its gates are destroyed by fire? Now let me pause there and say that Nehemiah's job, his vocation at that stage was the cupbearer of the king. I don't know why the king couldn't use his own cup, but he had someone bring his own cup to him and give him wine. And one of the things that the king didn't want to see is any sad faces around him. So the fact that he was sad was a, an offense punishable by death. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city of my family's graves, so that I may rebuild it. With a queen sitting next to him, the king asked me, how long will you be away and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I told him how long I would be gone. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may letters be given to me addressed to the governors of the province beyond the river that allow me to travel to Judea. May the king also issue a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to supply me with timber for the beams of the temple fortress's gate, for the city wall, and for the house in which I will live. The king gave me what I asked for, for the gracious power of my God was with me. Wow. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into how powerful this kind of little cameo is, but it is incredibly powerful. What I do want to draw out of that is this idea of prayer and preparation. Now, when the king says to him, what do you want? This is not the time for deep and prevailing prayer, right? When the king says to you in this moment, what do you want? This is the kind of prayer that I call the, oh God, oh God, oh God prayer. Now, many of you have been in a situation where you don't know what else to say, and all you're saying is, oh God, help me, oh God, help me. And I guarantee you in that moment, when the king was asking Nehemiah, what do you want? He didn't say, and we know this from scripture, he didn't say, well, let me go and pray about it, right? How many of you guys have ever asked a brother or sister in the faith if they'll do something and they'll say, I'll pray about it? And what, that, what does that generally mean? Like, I don't really want to do this. And so I'm going to find a way to like get out of it and appear spiritual in the same way. Now we know that. We know that that's one thing that could be happening, but we also know that one of the things that we're supposed to be doing is be in a place of consistent devotion in prayer to God so that when these occasions happen, we are able to answer. What are you saying, Nick? In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, when he hears about the state of Jerusalem, Scripture tells us that he consistently prayed for about a period of four months. Nehemiah was in deep and prevailing prayer for about four months. And you know what that meant? When the opportunity came, he knew exactly what to ask for. So in the context of our work scenarios, this is what happened with, with Nehemiah. If he had not prayed, he would not have known what to ask for. 
It was in the context of those four months where he's sitting there and he's praying to God and he's able to actually say, if this opportunity arises, I'm going to be bold enough to do this. If he hadn't planned and thought about this, he wouldn't have had that opportunity. This is the kind of pattern that we should be in. Because if we cultivate an intimate and consistent relationship with God, then when that oh God moment comes, we actually know what to do. Because this is the problem with most of us. There's nothing wrong with what I call a popcorn prayer, right? Which is like, oh God, help me. Oh, can you help me to do this? But the the challenge with all of this is that a deep and intentional focused time of prayer, a consistent time of relating to God is what sustains those brief and shallow, oh God, oh God, help me prayers. Popcorn prayers without an investment of prevailing and deep times of connection with God are like prayers of magic. Oh God, will you help me? I think another challenge that we have within the context of our work environments is that we don't really believe that Jesus can help us in our everyday life. How many of us are in a situation where we're dealing with a specific work issue? Do I present this Do I do this option as a nurse or a parent or a business owner? And part of the challenge that we have is maybe some of us have developed this idea of Jesus being very wise but quite naive with the way in which our world runs now. How many of you, well, many of you that are older, I'm sure have experienced younger people saying to you, you don't really understand how these things work anymore. Your wisdom just doesn't work these days. There's a measure of truth to that, but I think part of the challenge is that we've kind of pushed that onto Jesus. And when we're in our work scenario, we don't really believe that he is present and able to help us. Dallas Willard says this, The world has succeeded in opposing intelligence to goodness. And today, any attempt to combine spirituality or moral purity with great intelligence causes widespread pans of cognitive dissonance. What that means is this. In our minds, we find it difficult to understand that there is someone that is morally and spiritually pure like Jesus is and highly intelligent at the same time. He's not just nice. He's brilliant. He is the smartest man ever to live. And, spoiler, he is alive right now. It's it's, it's not the smartest man who ever lived. He's the smartest man that is alive. And he always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter to us as humans. I think one of the things that we've got to re-engage ourselves in within the context of our work when we hit a situation is to ask Jesus. Now, there are times where I know that I'm going to go into a difficult meeting, and I've been praying. But there are times literally in that meeting when, as this person is speaking to me, where I'm saying, God, please help me. Please help me. And that popcorn prayer is sustained by the times of devotion that I've had with God so that I'm able to ask those quick questions. The second thing we see in Nehemiah is that he epitomized the idea of a primary and secondary call. And we've spoken about this a lot over our God at Work series. But you think about everything that Nehemiah was. He was a cupbearer. He was a builder. He was a negotiator. He was a teacher. He was a visionary. He was all of these things, but his focus was on building, doing what God had called him to do. And he used all of his vocation 
to be able to do that. Now, the other cool thing as we look at Nehemiah, I think it's cool, hopefully you'll think it's cool, is this. There were so many other people that were flexible in their roles. Let's look at Nehemiah 3, and we're going to look at a, at a number of different verses. Verse 1, Eliashab the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Verse 8, next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Verse 9, then Rephaniah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to him, Shalem, the son of Halahesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. What are you noticing there? Regardless of their trade, there are priests, leaders, governors, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, traders, men and women, rich and poor, that have decided to build. It's not their skill that makes them valid workers. It is their identity first. Why? Because they are Israelites. What is the problem with Jerusalem right now? It has no wall. What is our duty? To build the wall. How many of us would have chosen a perfumer to build a wall? How many of us would have chosen a goldsmith to do the same thing? Let me ask the question a different way. How many perfumers and goldsmiths would have thought, I can't do this. I don't have the skill to do this. It's not my call to do this. Now, let me say this. Working within your gifts is both productive and satisfying. Now, God has gifted us with specific natural and spiritual gifts. And part of the challenge for us is to be able to find that for which God created us for and also gifted us to, to be able to give that. So no, no one is saying to the perfumer, you are now a builder of walls forever and always. But in this time, we don't need perfume. In this time, we don't need fancy gold jewelry. In this time, we need you to step in and build the will of God. And there are times in our lives where we need to do things that are not necessarily within the context of our call, but are in the context of the broader call of building the kingdom of God. Now, the counter is true, and when both people do their part, if we're a people that are focused on need, not niche, or niche, right? But need is this. What is necessary to be done? Niche is this. I'm a goldsmith. If you need something fancy on the wall done with gold, then call me. I'm a perfumer. If, I don't know how perfume is connected to a wall, but if you need that, call me. Now, part of our role, I, I, I guess I don't really want to know, part of our role as leaders, though, is this, is to identify gifting in people in order to be able to see them flourish. So I had this conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine, and he's been serving in this community as, as a sound guy. And I said to him, hey, I want to thank you for your service as a sound guy, but I also want you to consider that part of your gift and call, he's a business owner and entrepreneur, is actually part of the reason that maybe God has called you to us is to be able to stir that gift within the broader set of our community. So thank you for doing what needs to be done, but I also want to call you into some of the gifting that you have so that you can fulfill that. Does it, do you understand what I'm saying? Need versus niche. 
Let me say another thing. If we consistently function outside of our gifting, we're not going to be a whole lot of good to anyone. A couple of weeks ago, Sean called me and said, hey, can you help me uh, concrete my floor? I just, it's not level. I need to level it. And I said to him, I did say to him, I said, I don't know a whole lot about that, but I'll come and help you, okay? To say it was an unmitigated disaster would be an understatement, okay? We managed to, to burn through a drill. Uh, we managed to somehow um, decide that actually more water would solve the problem. And then we just decided to leave the job half done at the, at the end of it, you know? What I'm not suggesting is that we function outside of our gifting in a consistent manner, because then we're no good to anyone. What I am suggesting is this. When there is a moment where there is a need that we are actually able to say, because my identity is not connected to my vocation or gifting, I'm actually able to step in there. What was I communicating to Sean in that moment? Your need is important to me. That's what I was communicating. Hopefully, what I wanted was like, your need is important to me, and I helped you fulfill that need. And we didn't cross over that because my skill wasn't able to do that, right? Yes. We actually had to pay a professional builder to do that. Well, Sean did. Anyway. Why do we reject this idea of helping in areas where we don't feel like we should? Well, it's not because we're predominantly lazy. It's not even because we think we're better than that. It's because we believe that over-specialization is a way that we can control our lives. Maybe sometimes by refusing to do some menial things, we raise our value. And this is not just in the context of our community. This is in the context of work. This is not my job. What I'm saying is I am above that. I don't want to do that. And why do we do that? Because our identity is still so connected to our function. And I want to say this. If, your, if function is the bedrock of your identity, then you will be unstable because it's not if it changes, it's when it changes. Let me say that again. If you gain meaning from your function and identity from your role, you will be unstable and insecure, not if it changes, but when it changes. Lastly, we want to be a people that are humbly courageous. And we want to be humbly courageous in three areas. The way in which we deal with authority figures and bosses, the way in which we deal with our colleagues and the people that we lead, and the way in which we deal with opposition. Now, firstly, how we deal with authority structures. Let me say this. Matt has told me this before when we've had conversations about presidents. He said to me before, Nick, respect the position if not the person. And so there's a sense in which our nation has kind of forgotten that. That there is a respect for authority. There is a leadership gift that God has given us. And I know that this is hard to apply which is why we need to constantly be going before Jesus. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And in the sense, I'm praying the same thing in the context of a position of leadership for my boss. How many of us are praying for our bosses? Even if that's the only thing you can pray. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on her. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on him. Just pray for him. Pray for her. I look at Nehemiah. He was not timid 
or apologetic. When the king asked him, he prayed, oh God, help me. And then he said, this is what I want. But there wasn't an arrogance around Nehemiah either. Do you know what helps us to not be timid, to not be apologetic, but to not be arrogant either? It's actually being good at our jobs. If we're good at our jobs, when our boss asks us for something, or when we're in a position to ask our boss for something, we can do it without being timid or apologetic and without being arrogant. There is a humble boldness that comes upon us because we know we have done this job well. We also know that the ultimate authority is God and not my boss. We also know who we are asking. And Nehemiah knew that because God was with me. I got everything that I needed from Cyrus. I guess my question to you this morning is, is there a moment where your boss could ask you, what is it that you need? And you're able to stand there with a humble courage and say, this is what I need. What about dealing with our colleagues and people we lead? There's a, a group of people in Nehemiah 3 verse 5, and it says, these people from Tekoa made repairs, but their officials wouldn't help with their work. So there's this group of people that are saying, yes, we'll help with the wall, but the officials, they were above that. Now, being lazy and entitled seems to be the dominant spirit in the workplace. This is beneath me. I don't want to do it. And what God calls us to is to lead by example. Let me say this. The bar is so low. All we have to do in the context of our jobs is do what we say we're going to do it in the time that we say we're going to do it. We'll be in the top 75% of everyone in every profession. If we lead in a courageous and humble way, one of the things that we'll be able to do is challenge those, if we do have subordinates, to reset a bar that is too low. In Nehemiah 5, verse 9 and 10, he says, what you are doing, there's a, there's a bunch of nobles that are actually um, lending money to poor people, but are charging exorbitant interests. And so what Nehemiah is saying, so I continued, what you're doing isn't good. Why don't you walk in the fear of God? This will prevent the taunts of the nations that are our enemies. I myself, along with my family and my servants, am lending them money and grain, but let's stop charging them interest. We can be humbly courageous, and we can actually challenge and lead. We can challenge people in our workplace, especially believers, if we are leading by example. Nehemiah has not asked those men and women to do anything that he was not currently doing. He was building. He was um, not charging interest. He was using his wealth for the benefit of others. So if we lead by example, we also need to forego our interests. Many of you were here when Terry Virgo was here. He's in his 80s. He's been serving God over 60 years. And I remember a church leader saying to me, this is a man I want to follow. Because he was at a church conference, um, and he was waiting in line to buy Terry's book. Terry has written a number of books. And Terry was the speaker, the, the keynote speaker of the, uh, of the conference. And Terry's just waiting in line to get to the front to be able to buy whatever book he wants. 
And the guy says to him, aren't you Terry Virgo? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm Terry Virgo. He says, is this your book? Yeah, this is my book. Aren't you supposed to speak in about two minutes? He's like, yeah, I am. He's like, well, why don't you go to the front of the line? He's like, oh, I'll just wait in line like everyone else. That had more of an impact on him than every word that he wrote in any of his books was the fact that Terry would say, no, I'm foregoing my rights. I mean, who would have begrudged him saying, uh, I mean, I've written this book that people are waiting to buy. I'm also about to speak, so can you just kind of let me get in ahead of the line? No one would have said, oh, he's so arrogant. But there was something deep about deep in Terry's soul that actually helped him understand, I am able to forego my rights. You know the greatest example we have of that is Jesus. Philippians tells us that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he lowered himself. And finally, finally, when we deal with opposition, let me say this. Nehemiah was accused, intimidated, mocked, plucked, plucked, not plucked, plotted against, and they tried to kill him. I'm pretty sure in the context of your work, no one has tried to kill you, like physically kill you. You might feel that way, but, but let me say this. When Nehemiah, they had accused him, intimidated, mocked him, plotted against him, and tried to kill him, and he said this, I will not come down of this wall, for my God has a great work for me. We will face opposition, and we will face it, and the, and the, the cause of it, the root of it, is fear and self-centeredness. Let's make sure that the reason we face opposition is not because our work is poor, and not because we are poor workers relationally in that context. Peter is very clear when it comes to trials and persecutions. He says, make sure that if you're being persecuted, it is because of the gospel, not because you're behaving in a way that, yeah, people shouldn't like you. As believers, Nehemiah called his workers to work with a trowel in one hand, in other words, a building tool in the one hand and a sword in the other. And we need to recognize that we are at war, but we're not at war with our co-workers. We're not at war with our bosses. We're not at war with our clients who want more than anyone can ask or imagine. We are at war with principalities and powers, and our weapons are not natural. Our weapons are designed for the pulling down of strongholds, of everything that exalts itself above the knowledge of Christ. And one of the things we've got to recognize is the opposition that we're facing, we're facing from them most of the time because they themselves are afraid. They're afraid of losing something. Maybe that promotion that they thought was actually going to bring them meaning or that, that deal that they, they knew was going to bring them this bonus. They're afraid of not getting something that they feel like they deserve. At work, the only way for us not to be afraid is to be rooted in the knowledge that God is for us, that He loves us and He intends ultimate good for us, even if the situation does not feel like it's good. We also need to remember in, in the context of dealing with opposition that we are not alone. One of the coolest scriptures in Nehemiah is shoulder to shoulder, they built the wall next to each other. And I know the season in COVID has had us very, very scattered, like remote workers. 
But the reality is, regardless of where we are, we are shoulder to shoulder as members of the body of God. Band, you can come up here. You know, there's bad news with the story of Nehemiah. It's not a happy ending. What happens is, Israel is back in the land. The city is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. The wall is strong. But the people's spiritual state is completely unchanged. Nehemiah leaves. We don't know why. He leaves to go back to the king. He comes back six years later. And the spiritual state of Israel is worse than before the wall was built. Now, there's a prophet called Jeremiah that Nehemiah bases this whole kind of saga on because Jeremiah says, even though Israel was taken into captivity, uh, they will come back to Jerusalem. But Jeremiah says another important thing. He says that nothing will change because Israel has hearts of stone. And until they have hearts of flesh, nothing will change. And only God can give them a heart of flesh. Without new hearts, without a complete transformation of their inner being, no willpower, no leadership, no focused activity or accountability is actually going to change the way in which we relate to God. That cannot happen without the perfect sacrifice. And Jeremiah prophesies that the the way Israel will get new hearts is through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The great news about this is that Jesus is both helping us build because he says to Peter, I will build my church. Jesus is building his church, but he is also the cornerstone on which we build. And if we build with Jesus and on Jesus, there is nothing that will shake us. These three things that we've noticed in the context of Jeremiah, these are things that Jesus modeled. Jesus was prayerful in his preparation in the garden. He was honest in the garden. He was saying, God, if there is any way that you can take this away from me, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had cultivated a a devotional um, expression, an intimate fellowship with the Father so that there were moments where he would just utter these short prayers that would be so significant and meaningful. And we know Jesus himself was flexible in his role, but secure in his identity. We spoke about this last week. Teacher, healer, rabbi. But what does he say to Peter when Peter defines who Jesus is? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, because man has not revealed this to you. And on that revelation that I am the son of the living God, I will build my church. I don't know of a man that was more humbly courageous than Jesus, where he can stand before Pilate and says, no one takes my life from me. You don't have the power to take my life. You don't have the power. I can summon angels and they will rescue me. Courageous, yet humbly on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Nehemiah 4, verse 19, Nehemiah says to the officials, to the officers, and the rest of the people, the work is very spread out, and we are far apart from each other along the wall. When you hear the trumpet sound, come and gather. When you hear the trumpet sound, come and gather. Our God will fight for us. 
our God will fight for us. Let's work with an ear for the trumpet. When we hear that trumpet, let's gather together. Why? Because we are able to help each other? No. Because our God will fight for us. Brothers and sisters, we are His children. We've been given purpose, identity. We've been given an eternal kingdom and the privilege of helping to build that. When we hear the trumpet, let's understand and know that God will fight for us. Thank you, Nick. Uh, brothers and sisters, we come to the time that, uh, that we do each week um, where... Just thinking about it. We come shoulder to shoulder together to the table of the smartest man (laughs) that ever lived. Um, There is a table in the back, and there are two to the side. And I I just want to give us two two prompts. Um, We're going to take it together. We're going to take communion together. And we like to think of, I like to think of the communion as this opportunity to exchange, you know. Um, That we get to exchange what we're carrying. We get to be reminded of the great exchange that God has done for us. And so I'm wondering if there's maybe two different people here um, this morning. Maybe maybe the last couple of years as it has impacted your work, you're kind of tired and maybe burned out and a little frazzled. And if you are, you're actually not alone. Uh, Part of my day job is in human resources and I actually see it in all the studies like across the board. People are kind of worn out and tired and a little frazzled. And I believe that the Lord is here this morning to re-energize you for your work and to give you new vision for what he's called you to and a refreshing. And so you get the opportunity to exchange that for, for that and to receive prayer. There's going to be people to my left, to your right, that can pray for you. But I also think that there's maybe people here that are um, wondering if what they have to kind of give um, is is, is worth anything in building the wall? It's like, well, I don't know. This brick's not that important. And the reality is that God is in uh, in your work. I was thinking about uh, Jack, my son, who's nine, helping me with uh, outlets in the same garage that Nick and I totally screwed the floor up on. And um, and and I was I was showing him how to how to do like little things and, and like wiring and strip strip wires and stuff and 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 just talking to him about like. He's going to get to know that he helped build something some, someday when he gets to enjoy that room. He didn't help me immensely. It was like a little bit of a help. But the thing was the connection and his opportunity to participate. And God offers all of that to us. He doesn't really need us. He loves to be with us. And so we're going to take communion. I know we're running a little long. We're going to grab the elements. We're going to come back. I'm going to lead us. I'm going to give us a moment to pause. If you're one of those two people, I want to encourage you to take communion, talking to the Lord about it, and maybe maybe you need to receive prayer. There's going to be people to my left, to your right, that will pray for you. So go ahead. There's a table in the back. There's two tables uh, here, and we're, we'll take communion together. Lord, I pray for uh, my brothers and sisters and myself. Lord, would you remind us that you have answers to the problems that we have, that we can come to you, we can be with you. We can join you in the work that, uh, that you do and want to do through us. We thank you for the work that only you were able to accomplish, which we're reminded of with the elements that we hold in our hands. We remember through this bread that we hold that's been broken, that your body was 
uniquely broken for us. We remember you as we take this. And we also take the cup with the wine as a reminder of the blood that was shed, your, your blood that was shed, the unique work only you could do for the forgiveness of our sins, that we would walk in freedom and we remember you as we participate. Father, we thank you for the gathered body. We thank you that we get to do life shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters, that uh, none of us are alone. You have given us your spirit and you've given us one another. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen. Guys, thank you for your patience. We ran a little long this morning. Listen, if, if you need prayer this morning, th- th- those kind of topics, please get prayer. Uh, it's, uh, it's always free. So uh, it, for, for those of you, um, uh, we're going to be out around the back. We'd love to meet you if we haven't met you before. For the rest of us, go be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.